Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. Today we sit down with Rune Christensen, the founder of MakerDAO, to talk about stablecoins, what MakerDAO is, and how it works. Before we start, we want to say thank you to this week's sponsor, Neufund. Neufund is building an ERC-20-compatible, open-source technical environment, which enables the tokenization of real-world assets. Assets like equity in a company or real estate. Neufund does so by implementing basic protocols that bind an off-chain asset with its on-chain representation. The company is currently looking for a VP of engineering to help them develop their cutting-edge technical environment. Check out the job offer at neufund.com careers or review Neufund's GitHub at github.com Neufund. So thank you again, Neufund, for sponsoring this episode. And here is our interview with Rune of Maker. Today, we're going to talk about stable coins, and we have Rune from MakerDAO with us, which is one of the most popular stable coins right now. Um, and yeah, I think it, it no one could have missed the die and sort of all the, the buzz that's been going around uh, with that. So I'm really excited that we can have you on and talk about what this thing is. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here today. So looking forward to a great discussion. Well, let's start off, as we often do, with a quick intro to you and, yeah, who you are, maybe what you were working on before Maker and how you got into this. Yeah, so I got into I got into crypto through Bitcoin back in 2011. So I was really like a very early, you know, Bitcoin believer in the early days. And then what actually happened was that I basically lost a lot of money on Bitcoin. <laughs> Uh, and that's what drove me into looking at stablecoins. So from there, sometime around 2014, I got into BitShares, which was uh, arguably the first, or one of the very first blockchain 2.0 projects. And among other things, they actually invented the stablecoin uh, through the basic concept of using collateral to back, uh, like using volatile crypto assets to back then a stable asset on the blockchain. And then for a variety of reasons, uh, BitShares never really gained critical mass, like it never really got major momentum. Uh, I think primarily because they were trying to do a lot of things at once. So they actually had so many early inventions that still only are being rolled out today on Ethereum. Like BitShares had all of that in the very early days. But unfortunately, there was just so much that none of it really had like a single major breakthrough. Was was BitShares just, it was based on more Bitcoin? Like, I guess Ethereum didn't really exist then. So, no, so BitShares was its own completely new architecture. And in fact, okay. uh, it's still sort of, like, I mean, BitShares still exists today and it's is a quite big project. But also, um, kind of like the, the, the technical uh, legacy of, of BitShares has been is today sort of um, represented by EOS. You know? So there's it's this whole branch of, uh, of kind of like a blockchain philosophy based around uh, you know, delegated proof of stake, which is more focused on trading off decentralization for performance. 
Um, and and BitGS was was the first blockchain that implemented this idea and and had all these very advanced concepts, including the stablecoin. But yeah, like I said, it didn't really get the major traction that everyone was hoping for at the time. And then me and and some other people from the BitGS community then saw Ethereum as the great opportunity to, uh, you know, build in an ecosystem where ever you know we could just focus on just one thing and try to execute it as as uh, good as we possibly could. Uh, which is just try to be the best possible stablecoin. And then the Ethereum ecosystem from there can build all the other stuff around the system, right? So that's really how the Maker project started four years ago. And since then, we've just continued trying to actually build it out. Who were those original members? Who made, the, who's the original MakerDAO group? Well, so, I mean, so obviously it's primarily me in terms of uh, actually founding the project and sort of getting it started. But then, um, uh, it, you know, I was also joined by Nikolai Michigan, who was actually a co-developer on BitShares after a while, as well as James Rady, who is uh, and not like a, a, a sort of a, a key uh, community member in BitShares. So we were we were sort of the initial three guys that really um, got the project off the ground. And then immediately we were joined by a lot of other people, both from the BitShares community and also just like from the general Ethereum community, uh, because our focus from the very start was just trying to build something, you know, so sort of keeping our heads down, focusing on coding and, and designing and building real products. What time exactly, like what time frame did MakerDAO really start? Like, is it right at the beginning of the Ethereum project when it, the Genesis block, like what kind of, at what point would you say is the beginning? Well, I mean, that really depends on how you define it, right? I mean, so I started sort of I started really the the, the, the fundamental work in like over Christmas 2014. Uh, and then the project was announced, you know, in uh, I believe it was the 19th of March on Reddit in 2015. Uh, but the other co-founders and sort of the team only really assembled in the summer of 2015. And uh, and up until that point there were a lot of like, you know, essentially pivots and like redesigns of of the of the core design but then around some of 2015 that's when that was when the project really crystallized into essentially the the form it has today right and sort of the overall design the overall philosophy around how the project should like what it should look like and how it should be governed and and rolled out over time so as we're talking about stable coins i think it's obviously good to start with a definition of that and um, I think there's there's many ways to achieve a stable coin, and we've seen some tethers that are like centralized. You you put a dollar in someone's bank account, and they give you one token on Ethereum or what have you. Um, so can you maybe walk over a little bit of like what are the different types of state stable coins, and and how are these how is stability achieved in these kinds of stable coins? Yeah, so there are generally uh, accepted to exist three types of stablecoins. However, I'm like I mostly really focus on on two of them, but I'll also just like briefly get over the the third type. But the, so the two main types are the centralized stablecoins, and a centralized stablecoin is something like Tether, right? And then there's a decentralized stablecoin, and that's something like Dai. And really, the way a centralized stablecoin works is it, it's incredibly simple. It's it's quite straightforward and some would say pragmatic, right? In the sense that what you have is a centralized, trusted custodian who holds fiat currency in a bank account 
and then uh, directly controls and issues a token that can then be redeemed for for money in this bank account. So that's really great because it's very simple to understand how it can remain stable, and it's very easy to do arbitrage in this model. Of course, the downside is that you effectively lose most of the advantages of the blockchain, and you rely on a single counterparty and potential single point of failure, uh, as well as as um, introduce the potential risk of, of too big to fail in terms of a single centralized stablecoin absorbing a huge amount of, of assets under management. Uh, and as a result, we see—I mean—we sort of see a natural trend where this, like, there's just so many of the centralized stablecoins, right? So, because they're centralized, they sort of naturally decentralize through diversification. So we really have—I mean—at this stage, probably 50 or more of them uh, that exist and are being uh, being set up. And most notably, we even got J.P. Morgan creating a centralized stablecoin. So it's getting quite—it's um, getting quite mainstream to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, some even call it the new ICO in terms of how it's this uh, very uh, standard thing to do nowadays for people who want to do something in the cryptocurrency space. And and one can also add that it's an extremely profitable thing to do because if you have a ton of dollars in your bank account while someone else is you know, having blockchain tokens, you can collect interest on those dollars in your bank account. Yeah, that's absolutely, absolutely true. Uh, although I think, I mean, there's also a lot of, like it is, it is more... Uh, costly than you would think, though. So it is kind of a, a financial um, engineering exercise to really ensure a profitable setup. In particular, if you don't have really, really massive volume. But really, the the primary focus seems to be towards cryptocurrency trading and speculation, uh, and also very focused towards centralized exchanges and sort of doing the, you know, some of the most traditional activities that people have been doing with, with cryptocurrency ever since Bitcoin. So you mentioned you mentioned three different types, but you've really only listed two. What's the third? The third type of stablecoin is what's called, well, it has many different names, right? Some call it algorithmic, some call it senior shares, uh, some call it uh, uh, like a self-referential. Uh, and essentially what this type of stablecoin design uh, is meant to do, because it's really more of a design. There, I, there aren't really many of them that have ever existed in the wild. Uh, is to basically use a very, very advanced algorithm to then create stability out of nothing, essentially. Wow. Um, and the, the problem is, of course, then that uh, there th- there's a, a potential risk that the whole thing can collapse if suddenly there's a loss of faith in the algorithm. And um, like the most the most famous ones of these projects was uh, the project called Basis, which uh, raised... More, I believe more than $100 million in their pre-ICO from various um, high-profile investors, but then ultimately actually shut down, uh, citing regulatory risk um, and and I would say just general uncertainty around the model, right? And and basically this fundamental question of how, like what happens and how do you prevent this thing from just crashing? Uh, a fun fact is that they were actually the best performing ICO of 2018. Because they then returned the funds to the investors, and investors only took a small cut of, of the money they initially put in. So that made them the, the best crypto investment. Ouch. <laughs> you lost the least. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we can go back to sort of the fundamentals of why would one want a stable coin? Yeah. So, I mean, well, so like I was saying, right, there's, there is these centralized stable coins. I mean, just Tether, which obviously 
is really used for uh, just like large-scale crypto speculation on all sorts of markets that don't really have access to to fiat banking, which typically is because they're just not considered legit enough, essentially, to be able mm-hmm. to get banking relationships. And that's where Tether is a really useful um, substitute. And of course, there's also just this additional um, flexibility and and um, liquidity, really, that you can access when you can have much faster transactions between, like fiat fiat dominated denominated transactions between two different centralized exchanges, for instance. I always saw stablecoins, or like, I mean, when Tether, when I first heard about Tether, the way I understood it being used the most was just if you were dealing with really volatile currency prices, you could always kind of like quickly go back into something that's still crypto. So you don't have to go through the banks and like do some sort of fiat exchange. You can kind of go in and out of this, you know, stable US, USD, in this case, backed um, token. And that meant that like transactions between them could be faster. Um, like, obviously, yes, there's like this cross you sort of mentioned these like centralized exchanges working together but i really saw it just as like traders being able to go in and out of usd but not actually go into fiat that's at least the way i saw it like it was basically to play these this volatility really quickly yeah absolutely uh although i mean it's it's not really like if you're just operating on one exchange it's not really faster to sell your crypto assets into a stablecoin than to just sell it into let's say USD on Coinbase, for instance. The question is whether you're able to get an account on Coinbase in the first place, right? Because that's where a lot of the USDT, for instance, is used in in areas where there isn't necessarily that much coverage of like exchanges with uh, established banking connections. So it's it's mm-hmm. it, to a large extent it's about like yeah bringing out the power of the of the USD to areas that don't have easy access to it right now. Let's move on a little bit to uh, talk specifics about maker and what it is that you guys are doing um so i think it's useful to start with some definitions we have a bunch of terms like die maker there's the maker token uh there's cdps or cdos and might get into what the difference there is how would you present these different tokens and sort of what exists in the maker ecosystem yeah so definitely the most important is the die stablecoin Right, and so the DAI stablecoin is different from something like the centralized stablecoins we just discussed in that it is decentralized. And that means that um, on one hand, it doesn't have this direct redemption ability, so it doesn't have like a custodian that will always promise to redeem it one-to-one for, for money in a bank account or something like that. But then on the flip side, what it does have is the entire sort of fundamental uh, power and advantage of blockchain technology to the, the full extent uh, of, you know, of, of how that technology works, right? In terms of being fully decentralized, fully transparent, no single point of failure, uh, no central counterparty. Um, and as a result, also no too big to fail risk and sort of uh, potential moral hazard and, and principal agent problem. All of these uh, basically problems that to some extent resulted in Bitcoin being created in the first place, right? If you consider it a reaction to the financial crisis. Mm. Uh, so so to, to, to some extent, what we're doing is we're really trying to just build on top of what Bitcoin was initially trying to achieve. And uh, that's, that's where we've ended up with DAI as kind of this, this asset that 
it's just fully decentralized peer-to-peer digital cash. So in your model, in the three sort of that you had listed, it was centralized, decentralized, and algorithmic. Is Maker decentralized and algorithmic or only decentralized? Because it is backed by something, right? It's not a pure algorithmic thing. It's backed by ethers, as I understand. Yeah. And in fact, both algorithmic uh, stablecoins and the kind of stablecoin that that DAI is are decentralized. So I think a better, when you talk of them in terms of, of three types of stablecoin, actually a better uh, way to, to distinguish between them is to call what DAI is a collateralized stablecoin. And then an algorithmic stablecoin is also sometimes called an uncollateralized stablecoin. Okay. Because that's kind of the fundamental difference, right? So, and, and exactly you're right, right? So DAI is right now backed by Ethereum tokens as collateral. And this is really just like the very fundamental logic of how it can remain stable, right? It is basically that for every DAI in circulation, there is an excess of Ethereum token value locked in transparent and decentralized smart contracts on the Ethereum blockchain. And it's through that, uh, just like that basic logic of having an, an over-collateralized uh, pool of, of assets backing the DAI that creates the, um, just like, I mean, the value basis, really, and also just the, the, the trust that ensures the DAI actually trades around $1 on the market. I, I know that we want to go more into like these particular examples, but let's continue with our definitions. So we have the DAI, the stablecoin that I think a lot of people are really familiar with. There's also MKR, the maker token. What is the maker token? So while DAI is this um, decentralized stablecoin, that actually is is very simple to use, right? It's really just a stablecoin. It's a, it's a cryptocurrency with price stability. Anyone can really access this, access this and, and, and you know send it on their phone, use it to buy stuff with. MKR is kind of like the complete opposite of that, right? So MKR is a token that's only meant for highly specialized individuals that want to actually participate in the governance of this entire system and fundamentally be a part of the process that regulates the stability of DAI and ensures that it actually can remain stable over time. Is Maker a tradable token still, though? Yeah, so so MKR is a lot more like a traditional cryptocurrency, right? So it's a it's a it's an asset that's tradable in exchanges, and it has a variable price. And the reason why people uh, buy it is because it enables you to again to participate in the governance of Dai and and be a part of the process that regulates the stability of Dai. And then as a result of that, also uh, obtain some value from this positive, uh, like the positive regulation of the system right so you you have the potential to earn some money if things are going well but you also stand the risk to lose some money if things are not going well exactly so this is really the fundamental logic of the incentives that drives mkr that you have right there's like an alignment of interest between mkr holders and die holders in that mkr holders want to make sure that die remains stable because then they make money and if they make decisions that then end up potentially destabilizing die they take the the hit, so to speak, uh, directly through actual dilution of the MKR token. Um, So so that way there's just like, like it ensures that the ability to vote in the system actually is used to possibly interact with it. Right. So in my, if things are going well, the definition of well is the die is stable. Yeah. If the die remains stable, they make money. If it becomes unstable, they lose money. I think what would be really, and I think I want to 
a better understand this and maybe we can through the next definition, but like how I'm curious how these two things actually interact. So the next one, the next definition in the maker definitions is the CDP, um, the collateralized debt position. I have a, before we start on that, I have a question. Is that a, is that a term that actually comes from finance or is that a term that's used more in crypto? Yeah. So that's a term we just made up. <laughs> okay. I was wondering and, about that. And the reason why, the reason why we call it a CDP, right, is because the CDP, the collateralized debt position, is the smart contract that holds the collateral, right? So right now that means it's a it's smart contract where that holds Ethereum tokens. And then it essentially locks that collateral behind debt whenever DAI is generated. And that is fundamentally how the DAI supply is managed. So the CDPs are the mechanism that ensures that uh, for all the DAI in circulation, there is also an excess of collateral in the system that backs that circulating DAI. And uh, ultimately, that is done through through the debt. Um, and so CDPs as, an, as sort of a, an asset as a, and as, a, as an instrument you can use as a user uh, is first of all meant for advanced users. So it's not really something that regular users of DAI and regular people have to, to, to interact with because it's, it's a little bit, I mean, it's, it's actually quite an advanced uh, financial tool. Uh, but what it essentially allows you to do is to get leverage or get liquidity out of your Ethereum without having to sell it, right? Because you can deposit your Ethereum into the system and you can then borrow DAI against it. You, do, you, you borrow that DAI against your Ethereum collateral without having to sell your Ethereum collateral, right? So, for instance, what most people do then is they buy even more Ethereum. And what they've achieved then is a decentralized margin long in the system. Um, and you can really compare this to actually uh, taking out a mortgage with a bank, right? It's kind of like you pledge the deed of your house to the bank, you then take a loan from the bank, and afterwards you have to keep paying back the money you borrowed plus an interest rate. And only when you pay down the entire value of the mortgage do you then again fully control your house, right? And, and fully own it. And meanwhile, if let's say there's a huge crash in the in the housing market or something, or you f- you fail to make your payments, the bank actually has a claim to come and, and uh, potentially seize your house. And that dynamic exists with Maker as well, right? So that's the fundamental core dynamic that ensures that DAI can actually remain stable in a situation such as um, the Ethereum market crashing over time, right? Because the system holds the Ethereum in these collateralized debt positions as long as, as they're they are in these CDPs, there is a, a, a strict requirement to maintain a certain collateralization ratio, meaning that if the system detects that the value of collateral in a particular CDP, so basically a particular person took a loan, now hasn't maintained enough collateral to, to essentially back that loan, then the system will take its collateral and sell it off on the market and through that be able to contract the supply. What you just said there. So, like, how is it tracked? Do you actually have to keep the die somewhere? Like, how would you track if they still can pay it back? Well, so that is just inherently, or sort of endogenously tracked in the CDP, right? So, a CDP is an is a smart contract that can, for instance, hold let's say two hundred dollars worth of Ethereum, and then have that locked behind a hundred dollars worth of debt, right? And then, the, so right now, this, this minimum requirement, which we call a liquidation ratio, is 150%. So that means that if there's suddenly a huge crash in the price of Ethereum, and it falls by, you know, let's say, 
thirty uh, percent or something, right? Suddenly now the price of e like you know the value of your Ethereum collateral will be only hundred and forty dollars, uh, backing hundred debt in the CDP, mm. and that's where you've fallen below the hundred and fifty percent liquidation ratio. So that's when the system detects that now there is not enough collateral to fulfill this requirement, it then immediately liquidates the position. So on the as this as this uh, sort of market was crashing was just like CDPs consistently liquidating because it would have just constantly gone down. Well, so it, it was actually incredibly interesting to see how um, how all of that played out. Right, we really think of of the big uh, bear market of 2018 as uh, dies trial by fire because it was launched almost exactly at the top of the market and then it just <laughs> rode through it all the way down. Um, and uh, and so it was first of all it was surprisingly resilient in terms of the peg holding the entire way, and also it actually kept growing during this time, which is also quite interesting, right? So people kept actually taking out more and more CDPs even as the market kept falling, um, and also surprisingly people were incredibly good at maintaining the CDPs. So we actually saw a lot less liquidations than we expected in terms of uh, people actually hitting their minimum requirement, rather. People were just incredibly disciplined in adding more collateral as they saw their position um, getting close to to being very risky, right? But there were these events of huge liquidations, though, which typically happened after. If there'd been like a consistent sort of steady downturn and then it was followed by a massive sudden crash, that would very often cause um, just like a huge string of liquidations, right? So to better understand the way that the maker cdp model works like i'm definitely there's there's an article or two that we've been using in prep for this that we're going to add in the show notes because i think also seeing like like kind of graphics of like what happens and how the ethereum is locked and then converted into die and like at what point does that need to be uh paid back i guess would be really it's really nice to see graphically so i'll add that in the show notes so speaking of um, collateralizing a house as an example, I think um, that's an interesting one because we're sort of in this ETH space. You know, if you imagine a house, you can't buy groceries with a house. Like I can't sell you a portion of my house to buy bread. Uh, so obviously I go to the bank and trade my house for some dollars so I can uh, use those dollars. But that's not really how it works in reality. Like you do this upfront but uh in the MakerDAO model it is similar that like if you're a large eth holder you might not be able to do what you want to do with those eth or you might want to do margin trading or other things so you go and you trade those in you're willing to pay that fee that that it costs to take this loan um, in order to get something that is more liquid or that is stable or that you can do other things with but if you're not real if you're not already a large eth holder like how how does it make sense? Like what's the use case for me to say trade my dollars into Ether into Dai to then have blockchain dollars? Because I I don't you know I there is a fee, so I'm trading my dollars for a slightly less dollars, and I would obviously never like do a collateralized debt in a bank this way. You, sort of why would a regular person obtain Dai? Yeah, I mean so and that's a that's a great question right because while what we're seeing with uh, the centralized stable coins is that they focus a lot on kind of like the traditional speculation use cases of cryptocurrency Dai is really 
has proliferated much more towards kind of exploring this new frontier of just how you can actually use blockchain technology to build uh, products and services that go beyond speculation, right? So, I mean, um, one example is that DAI essentially powers the uh, the DeFi uh, ecosystem and movement, which is this whole um, quite recent new space that essentially has developed on Ethereum, right? Where what people do is they build these advanced uh, second layer financial services on, on essentially on top of the DAI stablecoin. So there's projects like uh, Compound, Uniswap and and a whole range of others that support Dai as as their main stablecoin, which is of course because these are all decentralized finance products. So they need to use a decentralized stablecoin if they want to represent stable value. Otherwise, they essentially lose the benefit of of their decentralization. So that's kind of like one type of interesting, um, um, you know, like avenues for for use cases and demand for the system, right? That that dies is how you enter this like new ecosystem of of decentralized applications and then another area we're focusing a lot on is financial inclusion and adoption in basically what we call the you know like underserved communities right so like places in the world where financial uh, infrastructure isn't very well developed or they're just like our different types of, of problems from the monetary system and maybe one of the best examples is argentina which is a country that just suffers from like quite severe inflation, um, and where people really already use a lot of of, um, of black market dollars, essentially, right? So dollar bills that are traded against the local currency as an actual store value. So here we're seeing like a lot of interest in adopting Dai as this um, just like digital version of the dollar that they can just hold on their phone. That's like easy to access. There's no restriction on on uh, on getting access to it. And it means you don't have to hide a bunch of, of bills under your pillow, for instance. If, you, if you're, like you say, the, the speculation use case doesn't really make sense. It doesn't make sense to trade your dollars for slightly less dollars on a blockchain if you're just going to hold those. Uh, but if you're, it, it does make sense to trade your dollars for slightly less dollars if the utility of those increases, which they do if you want to use decentralized finance applications on ethereum or if you want to have faster like you know uh transfers or if you want to do cross-border transfers in a way that you can't really do with regular dollars so essentially you're paying this fee to increase the utility of your dollars is that a fair way to say it uh yeah but just to be clear so you don't as a regular user of die you don't pay the fee or kind of like go through the process of doing the collateralization, right? You'd really just buy die from the market. Yeah. But someone and, pays uh, the actually, fee, right? So it has to be in there somewhere. Yeah, but that's I mean, but and that fee is essentially the um you know, I mean that's the that's essentially the cost of credit, right? Or the, the, the cost of capital. So assuming that the system is properly balanced, which is uh, like definitely a challenge in the early days, right? So we and this is actually one of the things we're experiencing right now that there are pretty significant swings in the interest rates of the system. To basically deal with this um, question of how to balance out um, die demand with supply, uh, but in particular, once we release this feature known as the die savings rate, which is coming with uh, the full version of the system that's being released sometime this year, we will really get a, a much more liquid and a much more stable market that will ultimately give users effectively the ability to just trade one to one into die at very very large volume. 
um, and then even there will be this this um, you know extra reason to hold die, which will be that there is actually going to be a savings rate on it, right? So you will actually earn savings over time from holding die, which kind of goes back to the earlier point about how centralized stablecoins monetize by taking the interest rate from themselves, where um, DAI is basically so efficient because it is fully decentralized that it actually has a surplus that is able to be given directly to the holders of the stablecoin. So this th- this actually, one of the points I wanted to, to go back to was this connection between DAI and the maker token. And I feel like it's somewhere in here as well. Like in the CDP, like is there a fee or anything? Like how do, ma- how do the maker token holders... Do they earn anything from the creation of DAI? That's the sort of fundamental connection, right? That like MKR holders earn based on the size of the of the DAI market, effectively. And and the the specific cash flow comes from the interest rate that is paid on borrowing money from the system, right? So what's called the stability fee on uh, collateralized debt positions. And uh, so right now, in the current version of the system, which is still just a beta. It's called single collateral die, so it only supports Ethereum as collateral currently. Um, the way you pay the stability fee is that you just pay it directly with MKR, and you have to burn this MKR when you pay the fee. So, for instance, if you have a fee of fifty dollars because the interest rate was was uh, you know whatever, right? Like you, the interest rate was five percent, and you had a hundred dollars and uh, or whatever, you had a thousand dollars and you know, you waited a year and now you have to pay $50 worth of interest rate, right? Then what that means is you have to burn $50 of MKR when you want to pay down the debt, like pay down the principal debt that you initially took out and then ultimately retrieve your collateral. So the maker token holders don't actually receive the fee. They just, there's less maker tokens out there and so their tokens are more valuable? Yeah, exactly, right? So it's uh. it's just a different... Uh, mechanism for a cash flow um, and the reason why we chose that mechanism is because it's just more technically efficient but from an economic perspective it has the same effect right in terms of ultimately transferring the value to the mpr token so a cd some like an individual who wants to create a cdp also needs to be a make uh, mkr holder that's right or at least they need to acquire mkr the moment they want to close the cdp and is that like in this like the cdp itself does that live within a wallet uh, you could say it lives within... I know it's smart contracts, but like, is it related to one wallet? I'm just curious if, like, does that wallet need to have MKR, Ether, and DAI in it for this to work? Yeah, so I mean, so CDPs are owned by Ethereum accounts, right? So uh, the way you specifically pay the stability fee yeah, is that you have MKR sitting in your Ethereum account, and the moment you want to pay down your debt for the CDP... Uh, the, you know, the CDP has to be able to access your MKR and and uh, through the whole, you know, like the, the way that uh, token transactions work in Ethereum uh, and then use that to also pay down the the necessary stability fee. Is that stability fee then paid at the end? Yeah, so that stability fee is paid at the very end when you, when you close down the CDP, right? And so one of the things, one of the main criticisms of this model was that it was very inconvenient that people had to actually go and buy MKR on the market, right? So kind of like an extra transaction uh, out of nowhere essentially right for, for no reason really so recently what has been added to to many of the front ends because there's actually many different dashboards right that give access to cdps um we, and that really is a showcase of how maker is is this more of a platform right so there are many different dashboards that that give people access to managing the cdps and some of them have implemented a feature where they will take care of actually buying the mkr and paying down 
the uh, the stability fee behind the scenes essentially so the user only has to pay the you know the the debts in dai and don't have to worry about going to an exchange and acquiring other cryptocurrency this model actually changes even more once we launch the full version of the system which is called multi-collateral dai right where first of all we'll add support for multiple collateral types we'll but we'll also add the dai savings rate so the this uh, this savings rate that's applied to dai holders and in in the multi-collateral dai the system fundamentally handles all of the fees and all of the the rates in dai only so you don't have to pay like you cannot pay your stability fee in mkr in sort of in internally in the system's logic you have to pay it in dai and the system then actually takes that dai and uh, does open market transactions to then burn the mkr token the way like when you pay your your debt you actually pay two types of debt right you pay this dai savings rate which goes to the dai holders and then you pay the stability fee which is essentially the risk premium that's specific to your collateral type which then goes to the mkr holders by burning the mkr yeah that's right okay i want to get more into multi-collateral that's a hard word to pronounce (laughs) (laughs) um I want to get more into that later, but I I just wanted to touch on as well, like what is the motivation for someone to actually close out their CDP? Because like I have some DAI, but I don't have an open CDP. So someone out there is missing their DAI to be able to close it out. And likewise, if if I want to buy something in a store with DAI, then I can, like I, I trade my ETH, through a CDP for die, and then I send off my die to buy my thing, and now you know I've I've extracted the value that I wanted. Why would I ever care about closing out the CDP? Well, so I mean, just like in a very simple uh, sort of case, it's it's all about getting access to your collateral, right? So um, it let's say you 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 have an Ethereum backed CDP, and the reason why you do that is because you want you need to spend some money on something, but you wanted to keep your exposure to ETH. Then later, if the price of ETH has gone to the point where you think, okay, now it's not really, it's not going to go much higher, that's the moment where you would want to then go and and buy back your Dai, pay down your debt, get get your ETH out, and then maybe sell the ETH for Dai so you can just have the the stable exposure or something like that, right? There's actually also like a deeper aspect to this question, right? Which is in general, how does the system ensure that there's a balance between um, how many people want to hold DAI and how many people want to hold CDPs and when there are new people coming in to buy more DAI, how do you match that up with when people want to open more CDPs and sell more DAI? And all of that is determined by the DAI savings rate. So essentially the interest rates of the system, right? So it's really a balancing act to try to get the aggregate demand for people who want to use CDPs and want to borrow money from the system to match up with the aggregate demand for people who want to hold die and who want to earn the, the savings rate over time. And the, mm. the basic logic is that if there's not enough people who want to hold die and there's too many people who want to borrow die, that means the the savings rate is too low, right? The interest rates in the system is too low yeah. and you have to increase it. And basically the same goes for the other way around, right? You have to decrease the interest rate if there's too much demand to hold die and not enough demand to borrow die. Essentially, I guess... You would you you would just buy Dai off an exchange if if all you want to do is use Dai for something, but if you actually want to use the CDP in its proper you know, full value of having liquid dollars while keeping exposure to Ether because you're intending 
to do something with that in the future, either through margin trading or just like through exposure and, and then trading it back later, then you'd go through the CDP, but otherwise you really wouldn't. Yeah, definitely. And it's really two different, it's two very, effectively opposite types of use cases, right? Because yeah. die holders are, are sort of regular users, like regular people who don't really need to know much about finance or advanced blockchain stuff, who just need to use money on the blockchain. And maybe in many cases, they actually use DAI without even knowing it because it's being used sort of under the hood in some sort of fintech solution. So that's basically regular users and the majority of users just use DAI and don't worry about the other stuff. And then CDP users are these quite advanced users who actually, rather than access money and access stability, they want to access effectively the opposite, right? They want, they specifically want volatility and leverage because they not only want to hold the, um, the 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 speculative or volatile collateral asset, but they also want to borrow die against it and actually go and use that die to buy something like some other volatile asset, for instance. Yeah. Would there be any point of like taking your ETH, putting in a CDP, getting some die, trading for ETH, putting in a CDP, getting <laughs> like? Is there any reason to go through that chain multiple times or no? Yeah, so people do that all the time. So, um, and that is really just—I mean, <laughs> God. Uh, there, like, of course, there's a there's a pretty natural limit to how you can do this. And in general, it's just done in uh, like when you really want to do it, you you typically do it in two steps. Uh, no, sorry, three steps in total, right? So, it could be something like you start with let's say a hundred dollars worth of Ethereum, right? You can then use that to generate let's say um, fifty dollars worth of Dai, right? Well, it's, it is 66, right? It's always a, isn't it 50%? Or does that change, that, that over-collateralization? Well, so, I mean, you can, you don't, you're not, like, so 66, uh, like, the, you have the ability, yes, to, like, to generate 66 die with $100 worth of collateral. But you would never okay. have a user actually generate that sort of directly because that would put them at the absolute ah. limit, right? I see. Okay, so you usually would take out much less than that. Yeah, I mean, in, in practice, what we see is people typically collateralize by th- three times. So that's kind of, that's the average collateralization of the system, right? So that would be someone using $100 worth of collateral to generate 30 die, pretty much, okay. right? Uh, but also what, what the more sort of aggressive uh, margin traders tend to do is to collateralize 2x. So they end up having a uh, you know, yeah, right. Like, I mean, they would, for instance, they would like, maybe they would like to end up in a situation where they have $200 worth of collateral and then 100 debt uh, in the CDP, okay. right? And you can do that in two steps, starting from just having $100 worth of Ethereum, right? If you basically generate 50 die at a time, two times in a row, you can actually go through this interaction without ever um, exceeding or like without ever really approaching the risking, risky state where you you could potentially get liquidated. It's kind of interesting to see um, margin ratio. So I think Kraken and Coinbase, they support like uh, two to five X ratios or something like that. Maybe they increased it recently. I don't know. But typically like in the traditional um, FX trading, like the currency trading world, um, they're kind of famous for having 50 to 100 X margins. And it's just these insane margins, but it's kind of because currencies are typically very stable and like they don't actually have that much volatility so you need like 100x margins actually get some some exposure to it but it's interesting i mean we'll i guess we'll see if ethereum ever becomes more stable like if the margin ratios of people go up 
we had sort of touched on this earlier that the MKR token holders can participate in governance of the system. But what I'm curious about here is like, what exactly can they affect? Because it sounds like the individuals like, like, do you say holding or running a CDP? Uh, you say holding a CDP. Holding a CDP. So the individuals that are holding a CDP, they can choose like how much they take out or what have you. What are the maker, the MKR token holders deciding? So the MKR token holders actually decide on exactly um, this uh, issue that Frederick was just talking about, right? So what is like the sort of the correlation and the connection between the fundamental risk of the collateral asset and then the, t- the, the kind of, of terms uh, you get to take out a loan with that asset on, right? So for instance, if you want to use Ethereum as collateral, obviously that is a quite risky asset, right? So that's why it has this significant um, over-collateralization requirement, for instance. Whereas on the other hand, if you wanted to use another stablecoin as collateral, suddenly there's a lot more room for leverage, right? You would actually get to these Forex levels of potentially 100x if you're using uh, another currency as collateral, right? Simply because there's so little fluctuation that um, you can, um, you know, you, you, you still have that wiggle room essentially in terms of how, how quickly the price can move and how, um, how safe, uh, like how safely the system would be able to liquidate a position and ensure that it remains over collateralized as a whole. So that, that's really like, it's really this fundamental question that the MK holders, they, um, they deal with. And so that also means it's very much related to the future where there will actually be multiple collateral types. So in the current version where there's only Ethereum as collateral, there hasn't really been much, like too much uh, kind of like experimentation with with trying to change uh, too many of the variables of the system other than just continuously adjusting the stability fee, so the interest rate of the system to try to balance the die pick. But, in the, but basically the entire governance framework um, is all based around building off traditional risk models of assets such as bonds and stocks and commodities and so on that are essentially how banks they do margin lending on these assets in the real world um, building all those models we're able to construct an open source framework that allows us to actually scientifically determine how we should set all of these various risk parameters as we call them right the various terms of the different um, like of the different collateral types and the different ways of, of using these collateral types in the system uh, that ultimately give the system the best possible conditions for long-term stability of DAI, right? And that really comes back to the whole uh, fundamental incentive of MKR, right? Which is that MKR holders want to make sure that DAI remains stable, which really means that it may- remains over-collateralized and it remains uh, without too much concentrated risk. So it doesn't, it isn't at the at the mercy of a potential black swan event just crashing all the collateral at once and suddenly leaving a huge um, sort of empty hole in the in the in the solvency of the system. Because MKR holders then have to actually cover that directly, right? They actually have to to recapitalize the system and essentially bail it out through direct and automatic MKR dilution. That the system just it detects there's a shortfall and immediately it starts diluting MKR. So that means it creates new MKR. Yeah, and that's the right. value of their MKR goes down. Yeah, you can think of it as as if um, the bailout for the financial crisis has been financed by you know the big banks and the regulators and kind of like the people who had been responsible for actually doing it right. Like the people who have made the wrong decisions, if they then had some sort of like financial uh, stake in the system as a whole that was then diluted and essentially taken from them mm-hmm. if they if they fail on on uh, 
properly regulating the system. So what you've just described sounds very much like, I mean, you, you basically just said this, you have one token right now, you only are like the, the, the main maker governance process right now would only be focused on the stability fee. You have maker holders that can vote or, I mean, I guess, how does that actually work? Is it just sort of like, here's the stability fee that's proposed by the system. We think this is the right way. And then they vote or is it all kind of automatic? So how does that actually happen now? Uh, Basically, the approach of the governance process is to focus on first getting what we call, uh, I mean, yeah, well, I mean, getting scientific consensus, right? So getting, so going through this scientific governance process where the goal is to initially get risk experts and kind of people who actually um, are able to to articulate and reason uh, the decisions in the systems correctly to then get a consensus around what is what does the data show us right now that the best course of action is. And this is still like a very, like it's it's still incredibly difficult to do that in a, in, you know, a, a very precise manner. So it is quite a lot of, of kind of like just trying to see what is the best, what is the best guess at how the system should be controlled from here from a perspective of, of stabilizing dice. So this is when, uh, you know, this is the fundamental question of if the die price is too low, we have to increase the interest rate. If it's too high, we have to decrease the interest rates, right? So, so that is, you know, so first there's this, um, what we call the governance meetings and generally just like the community process of people discussing uh, the situation and and, uh, and sort of aligning on the data and the, on the facts. And then from that, ultimately, there there is like, um, like, I mean, there there's there's a consensus formed around what do we believe, uh, like what does the community believe to be the best course of action? And then based on the consensus, a vote is then proposed. And that vote then, as long as the consensus process and, and so the scientific governance process was followed correctly in the first place, that vote then always passes, right? And the vote is really about, it's almost like the MKR holders are acting as an oracle to the process of whether um, the governance actually happened correctly or not. But this is actually proposed by people. Like it's, it's, it's actually, it sounds like, like some, it's proposed and then like one would need to actually stake or do something with their maker tokens like it's nothing automatic it's not like if you don't answer it just like automatically goes somewhere it's like you actually have to act yeah that's correct so and there's even uh, it's even like a, a double what we what we think of as a, as a two vote model so initially there's what we call a poll where it's basically a yes or no vote where you get to um like signal with your MKR whether you believe that this is the correct decision and whether you believe the governance process has been properly followed. Sometimes it's actually a multiple choice vote. This is a, and we've actually, in fact, we've done that for the very first time um, this week. Mm. And, uh, and so that, that's a way for kind of the MKR holders to give their final input on whatever the question at hand is after it's already gone through this like scientific debate process. And, once a decision has been made through the poll, um, then you get to this, the 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 next phase where MKR holders actually yeah like effectively stake their MKR directly on. Um, it, you could sort of think of it as a smart contract that implements the new state, right? So there's a smart contract created that's put on the blockchain that actually contains um, data that, if it is voted in as uh, what we call the active proposal, right? So if it's kind of, if it obtains the most votes in the system through people essentially staking their MKR on that particular proposal, then it gets administrative access 
to the call maker system and it's able to actually directly change the state of that system and then the data of the proposal then executes and just like change like directly changes the state of the system right and that's and then the stability fee for instance is then immediately uh, updated from that moment on so um this process as a whole then means that that you have this like sort of this multiple this multiple phases that start very broad right and sort of narrow down until the moment where it's just okay we're going to actually execute uh, this logic into the system and and change it based on what we decided. I know that like this past week, you this was this question of uh, the peg the peg was lost. Was it the first time that the peg was lost? Well, so I mean, the, so that has always been a, a well, that is a soft peg, right? And this is fundamentally okay. because it's not uh, backed one to one by a custodian, as it's not a centralized stablecoin, right? So uh, there's always been uh, like a spread, right? There's always been a difference between. Um, you know, like how much die you can buy and what what price you you buy it at and so on. Especially in the early days, because it's just low liquidity and it's very early, right? But what happened was that for a longer period of time, the stability fees or the interest rates in the system were just not set very well, essentially. Or rather, they were set well initially, and then they were not changed quickly enough to accommodate the the change in the in the ETH market. Specifically, it's because they were. You know, like we, the ETH sort of bottomed out, and suddenly there is this much more positive sentiment uh, of people thinking that the price will go up. So that resulted in even more CDPs getting opened. Ultimately, that just resulted yeah. in like I mean, the the rate was simply too low for the amount of demand there was for for opening CDPs. And then there was a process to continuously increase the stability fee, but every increase was effectively too small and had very little impact. And uh, that's why now, like increasingly, what the governance process has then been doing is it's sort of been more and more aggressive in how these in- increases have been made, uh, in order to try to get like f- sort of figure out where the balancing point is that'll actually start getting uh, a, a real reaction out of the market in terms of returning Dai back to uh, this more like f- firm position where the spread really, you know, where you can you can sell it like slightly below one dollar and you can buy it slightly above one dollar. Speaking of the dollar price, something that I'm very curious about is oracles and how the dollar price actually makes its way into the system. Like, who is inputting it? How and like, how do these oracles actually work? Yeah, so uh, many people think of oracles and sort of call oracles uh, really the weak spot of every decentralized application, right? Oracles are definitely this, um, uh, you know, very, very important part and also. A, a bit more of uh, you know like the part that sort of connects a decentralized system to the real world, right? And and the definition of an oracle is like some sort of external system that then delivers trusted data onto the blockchain, right? And and of course because Maker needs to be able to detect the price of of ETH and needs to be able to perform liquidations in the system, uh, it relies very heavily on oracles, right? Um, and and um, and actually what we've done in the current beta. Right where um, we just needed to get this, you know, show that the system works and get it up and running, was to essentially build an oracle that uh, we just knew would be really robust. Um, so we used a model, like a very simple model, where it's essentially like, like right now it's fourteen trusted but actually anonymous actors that very few people actually know the identities of these people um, in order to prevent, like, protect any sort of attacks being being uh, performed against them. Uh, and then they were they were included into the system at the launch of the system, right? But actually, they are under the control of MGR holders. So um, it, it has never actually happened, but the MGR holders have the ability to update this set of oracles over time. 
Uh, and then what happens is these 14 oracles, they all uh, run, actually, like, all they all run different types of software. So there's, uh, like, a focus on having diversification of the infrastructure, right? So they don't all run the same Oracle system. Rather, there's, like, different types of software that ensures um, there's, like, different methods for actually obtaining the price in the market and then pushing it onto the blockchain and into the system. And then on the blockchain itself um, is what's called the medianizer contract. So basically a contract that then takes these 14 different input sources and then just calculates the median of the input they're giving and then ultimately pushes that median into the, the core DAI system itself. So that way we ensure that there is there is some level of decentralization or some level of resilience against compromise or failure of some of these oracles. But you never, have you ever thought of using like, like in the interview we did with Jenna from Melonport, they're like working with Kyber. Like there's other sort of price discovery oracles out there. Do you ever either like test yourself against these or have you thought of using those as well? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the main focus points for the for the upgrade of the system to the the full version with multi-collateral die is to significantly upgrade the oracles right because okay. it's really all about getting the oracles to a state where they are completely resilient against the text right and actually what we found is that the main like the main important feature that needs to be be added onto the system and needs to really um, be a part of really every oracle and every decentralized application is not even um like making the oracle itself more robust because it is never like no matter how good you make an oracle you're never going to be able to completely guarantee that it won't fail and it won't be compromised and potentially be used to launch an attack against the system where the data is manipulated right so instead what you need to do is you need to have a secondary um really like a fallback mechanism or like an like um really a, a, a like a defensive emergency mechanism that ensures that even in the worst case scenario where the oracle starts inputting, let's say, a bunch of zeros or like a very, very high number or just some random data, you need to be able to guarantee that you will always be able to to protect against that and, and uh, recover from it. And so that is really the first uh, big upgrade we're adding to the system. Um, and the way we achieve that is through a combination of two mechanisms. The first one is the oracle security module. And the Oracle security module is, we actually have a whole bunch of these security modules, but the Oracle security module uh, is, like, what they do is that they just impose a delay on the data. So the Oracles input the data through the regular mechanism of computing the median, and then that median then actually sits in the Oracle security module uh, for an hour and sort of just sits there and waits. And then after an hour, it is pushed further into the core of the system. And during this hour-long uh, security delay, the community then has the opportunity to actually protect the system from an attack by doing what's called an emergency shutdown, which is actually a mechanism to completely shut down the entire system and um, like settle all positions and gracefully unwind the system essentially and like uh, immediately um, through with like full guarantee completely unwind any sort of risk in the system and any like any sort of operational yeah. risk in the system. And uh, then of course from there you have to be able to also quickly recover and, and get it all back up again and basically migrate to a new deployment. So there is this whole process around how the system can protect itself from various types of attacks. Uh, do it like a temporary shut, like shutting everything down, pausing everything, making sure nothing uh, blows up and nothing goes wrong. And then redeploy itself, uh, have everyone migrate to the new system and then resume operations. And actually, this can be done quite smoothly once um, the infrastructure is in place. This actually leads me to the next question, which is about security. 
and how you even designed a lot of this stuff. So like, are you using statistical modeling in any way to figure out what could like, like, how are you basically designing a lot of this risk profile? Who, what, what tools are you using? Well, so I would say there's, there's, there's mainly three types of risk to consider, right? So first of all, there is uh, really like the fundamental like economic and financial risk of the system, right? So this is where we use traditional risk analysis and, and, uh, like uh, frameworks like value at risk and this kind of traditional financial tools that enable us to to as a community get consensus around how like how much interest should we charge on a collateralized loan with you know US treasury bonds or something like that right so that's kind of one, one kind of risk and it's really handled in the in the traditional way that you handle this type of risk in the real world but of course upgraded with the power of open source and and community governance and then a second class of risk is cryptoeconomic risk. So this is really the type of risk you're exposed to by being a decentralized system on the blockchain uh, that is controlled by you know the community by by voting tokens and also by um, by like this tr- these trusted data sources such as the oracles, right? So the, so this is a class of attacks that in, that include things like uh, like someone buying up all of the MKR and doing some malicious vote with it, or someone taking control of the oracles and trying to to um, inject malicious data into the system and the crypto economic um, attack vectors are all covered by the emergency shutdown i just talked about right so like basically what you do is you have delays on any sort of of um of sort of um you know proactive change to the system and then you always have a much easier way to re to do a reactive defensive shutdown of the system and then a redeployment that can uh, mitigate whatever de- like whatever cost the attack in the first place right so if you have some bad oracles you do a redeployment where they're not included, right? If you have someone buying up a significant chunk of the MKR and trying to vote something terrible in, you do a redeployment where his MKR stake is not included, right? Yeah, so the final type of risk is just fundamental technical risk, right? So this is uh, the DAO-style problems, right? Basically, the risk that there is some sort of vulnerability in the code itself, and that would enable someone to just like go and um, steal all the collateral or something like that, right? And uh, to, to a large extent, this is the most serious type of risk um at least in the early days right especially in the context of you know like i mean i actually saw the dial happen live right right before my eyes and how like the 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 assets were being drained out of the the smart contract right so uh that is really more than anything else the main thing that we've been the main problem we've been trying to solve with maker and i mean the only real solution is just really good code right it's to like not make terrible code with exploits we had uh, Martin Lundfall on just recently, who is doing formal verification with you guys. So I know that you're using at least that as a technique. I'm curious to hear more, yeah, about what, how do you see smart contract development and the security practices around that? Because it is an extremely difficult area. I mean, I'm sure we could talk like an hour on this, but yeah. <laughs> uh, just like your general thoughts and like thought process and how you design and build these smart contracts to ensure that quality. Yeah. So it really, I mean, well, so. I mean, so so fundamentally, it is all about writing good code, right? And following best practices and not making something that's bad. Um, but yeah, there's like approaches to do that, right? And the, I think the most important is just simplicity, right? So like have the, try to really have the simplest possible business logic, the simplest possible requirements from a design perspective um, and avoid putting anything into the core of the system that you can build in a second layer or third layer application, right? Like from that, just from that 
those design principles alone, you already um, like that. I mean, more like I guess those are the very basics that would ever allow you to actually create something that's safe for the long run. Because you can't like fundamentally before you can do anything else, you have to just have a simple uh, starting point, so a simple design, right? And then in terms of how you actually implement this design, um, formal verification and effect, like basically the ability to to sort of properly reason around uh, what your your code actually does. Is then the, the the critical aspect here, right? Um, though, I mean, but but it's also really important to not sort of over like overemphasize or kind of like overly rely on the concept of formal verification by itself, right? Formal verification is really more of a tool that helps you achieve what you really want to achieve, which is good code. It's not like you can sort of do like a magic ritual and then do some formal verification and now your code is safe, right? Like you can still easily yeah. have a system that can get hacked. Uh, even though you think some of it is formally verified, if it's complicated and uh, and you know that you know it just wasn't correctly made, right? But of course, the the the, the practice of of trying to the best ex- like to the best possible extent of doing formal verification is a process that by itself greatly helps um, with the goal of achieving great code and achieving. Um, just like a you know a system that ultimately is simple enough and and uh, built robustly enough that there are no major vulnerabilities in it. I'm curious to hear what's in the future for uh, MakerDAO. I mean, we've talked a little bit about multi-collateral DAI. I'm curious in particular, like what the types of collateral you see there are. Like we're now starting to see like wrapped Bitcoin showing up on Ethereum. So, you know, we could possibly get other tokens in there as well. But I'm also curious to hear your thoughts on like ETH2 and that whole development and interoperability and like how that can bring a lot of, you know, actual um, diversification to to this multi-collateral thing. Yeah, so... So, um, so in terms of Maker's own roadmap, there are really uh, three major milestones that that we're working towards, right? So, first of all, there is launching multi-collateral die um, in sort of its its bare bones uh, format, which, in to some extent, really is just launching die as it was in its full its full version, really. So, and and uh, moving past this current beta stage into a uh, you know a future-proof uh, full version of the system. And that will initially mean supporting various kinds of, like, out of the gate, various it'll support various types of ERC-20 tokens, and basically the kind of stuff that's currently available on Ethereum, but which, to some extent, will be quite limited, uh, you know, compared to Ethereum, which is still obviously going to be the, the most significant uh, type of collateral in the system, just based off, like, the, the market for these various tokens, right? But then, what's coming next after multi-collateral DAI has been launched and uh, we sort of start focusing on on the next steps of the project is to actually focus on getting access to real world assets as collateral in the system, right? So, and this is achieved through um, security tokens and other types of tokens that are actually able to implement a legal framework and ultimately represent a legal claim on a real asset. And uh, one of the the major efforts we're doing here is, for instance, we, that we are have completely pivoted the Oasis Dex decentralized exchange. That is a decentralized exchange. We are actually the first decentralized exchange on Ethereum that we built uh, initially back in 2016. The focus will be to then, yeah, like get access to regulated security tokens, but in a way where, on one hand, they are fully compliant with the necess- you know, the relevant laws that make them actually have 
you know, force of law in terms of their legal claim to an underlying asset. But at the same time, they also, from a technical perspective, exist in a format that allows maker and the maker governance to interact with them and actually accept them as collateral into uh, the CDPs in the system. And that's going to really, I mean, that's when, to some extent, like the story of maker really begins, right? Because once you get access to real world assets, there's just no longer a limit to scalability, right? You, there's just, there's trillions of dollars of assets out there that actually can be very efficiently deployed as collateral in the maker system. You know, if adoption of DAI itself is also properly driven forward, right? And adopted by, uh, you know, like both like various uh, business solutions and kind of like um, company and B2B infrastructure, but also things like the unbanked and the developing world who need access to to, to financial services. Um, and then, of course, the whole uh, decentralized finance and, and uh, all of these like new, this this uh, blue ocean of new technology that's being built on the blockchain and powered by DAI to a large extent. What about that ETH 2.0 question, though? What's most crucial for, for Maker is to achieve uh, sort of financial scalability, right? From the perspective of DAI can grow to any amount of, of DAI in circulation and still remain stable because through access to real-world assets, we can create proper diversification of the collateral base. But then we need to get to the, the next big question, which is how to achieve technical scalability, like how to actually support uh, many transactions per second, right? And how to, be, how to actually reach out and, and interoperate with all the various kinds of financial systems, accounting systems, uh, payment solutions that exist out in the real world. And this is where we focus heavily on uh, blockchain interoperability solutions. And in general, like cross-chain, um, you know, solutions, uh, like cross-chain messaging and communication and um, various forms of two-way picks. And uh, like a really interesting example of something that's already running now and is very popular is the XDAI sidechain to Ethereum, right? Where we have um, basically a very centralized but also very performant uh, blockchain that then can can process DAI transactions extremely cheaply for like, you know, particular transactions where what you want is, you know, you don't really want to do like large-scale, highly secure transactions. You just want to do a lot of small payments very efficiently, for instance. One thing is deploying sort of specific sidechains. Another avenue is connecting up with and sort of um, uh, interoperating with and being available on other sort of full blockchains, right? So something like EOS, right? Kyber is actually working on a bridge here. Um, there's also solutions like Cosmos and Polkadot that are coming out that, that focus a lot on blockchain interoperability. And uh, ultimately, our vision is that eventually DAI will be available on every single blockchain, right? That's not really our general approach to adoption and to to um, making our system available, right, is that we don't want people to be restricted by their own choices in what kind of technology they want to work with, right? So it doesn't matter what kind of blockchain you want to use, what kind of wallet, what kind of whatever, right, what kind of techno solution you want to use. We'll make sure that DAI is available no matter what you want to do, right? And in eventually, like, it'll, it'll be available because it's technically possible to do so, so there's not really a reason not to do it, right, it's particularly if the demand is there. Those are not small ambitions. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And this is something that'll take many, many years to realize, right? And ultimately, it will be a great community effort. So so right now, it's mostly driven by the foundation, but increasingly, uh, the ecosystem is also just getting its own momentum, right? And that's when uh, the power of, of a decentralized community really starts to show, right? When these things start just forming on their own, and they don't actually have to be built by uh, the foundation. There's so much more that we could talk about 
This is very hard to wrap up this interview because I have more questions and I want to ask you. Um, we we know a lot of people in the community, or we know, we we also have had come into contact with other maker people. I actually feel like this may be the beginning of a series a little bit because I think that there definitely is more to explore. Um, and I just want to say thank you again for coming on. Yeah, thank you very much. Of course. And giving us this awesome overview and kind of introduction to this obviously much larger and expansive, potentially expansive topic. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite something. <laughs> cool. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. And uh, to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs>